Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by filmmaker Charlie Shackleton, director of such films as Beyond Clueless, Fear Itself, Fish Story and Lasting Marks. Charlie, your new film, The Afterlight, is currently touring cinemas across the world. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Just thinking about all of those films, um, which I've, I've been lucky enough to see, all bangers. Bless you. I like that you had the confidence to say them like you were name-checking kind of tentpole studio movies, even when you were talking about my relatively little scene short documentaries. They are all sub-90 minutes. That's what matters. I mean, that's what I love about your work as well. I mean, you're, you're, you're so on message, you're so for the cause uh, that we celebrate on this podcast. You know, being under 90 minutes, has, does, does that make things you know, quicker to make, easier to make, or is that a total misnomer? I think I always had it in, in the back of my head, probably even on just a subconscious level that like I hadn't earned the right to make films longer than 90 minutes because the two features, my first two features are 88 and 89 minutes which was not like a conscious choice, but I think there was some part of my brain that was like, who am I kidding? I can't ask people to watch this for more than 90 minutes. Uh, but obviously I went, you know, right up to the wire. I'm always fascinated by, does that ever come into someone's mind when they're editing a movie or is it like, it just, it has to be as long as it is. Or, or if there's a secret goal of, I've always wanted to make a two hour movie, a 90 minute movie, a 70 minute movie. No, I think, like I say, it, I, I think I was consciously trying to make it as long as it needed to be, but subconsciously clearly had a hang up uh, that suits the, the premise of this podcast down to a T. Your new film, The Afterlight, sticks to that remit as well. 82 minutes long, I believe. It is. And it's currently on tour uh, around the UK and, and you've taken it to other countries. Can you just explain to listeners how this film exists and how you're distributing it to audiences? The Afterlight is a collage film. It's constructed from hundreds and hundreds of small fragments of other films uh, from all around the world mostly from the first half of cinema history. And the thing that unifies all of these fragments is that everyone who appears on screen, whether fleetingly passing through the background or in the foreground, or whether they're given dialogue or not, are actors who are no longer alive. So the idea is that the afterlight itself becomes this kind of gathering space for the performances they left behind. And, and in a more general sense for, for kind of cultural memory itself and our continued remembrance of these people for as long as we choose to you know preserve these films and keep revisiting them and watching them and so on. And so fitting that premise, The Afterlight itself exists as a single 35mm print and there's no digital copy, I don't have a copy, there's no negative, there's just this one print and it tours and tours and tours and every time it screens it inevitably accrues a little bit more damage running through the projector with the idea being that that this film too will eventually disappear as it little by little erodes under the strain of exhibition 
So actually, funny, we were talking about runtime with the previous films because in this instance, it really did matter because I didn't even know this while making it, but the fact that it's 82 minutes is getting very close to the point where it would have tipped over into a fifth reel. The film is four reels, and as far as I'm aware, you can max out about 21 minutes on each reel. So it would have been very annoying to have to carry a very short fifth reel, especially because it would have gone over my hand baggage allowance for most (laughs) major airlines. So in this case, having an 82 minute runtime and therefore only four reels of film was absolutely crucial. Second checked bag fees. Can't be dealing with that. I'm not made of money. The film is about actors who are no longer with us. And you you have a a bloody good stab at, 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 you know, providing a a broad selection. How did you decide who's going to be in the film and and whistle it down to the the, the people that we do see on screen? I mean, the interesting thing for me was how many of those decisions were sort of out of my hands. Because while, yes, there was a, you know, vast pool of material, there was obviously vastly more material that no longer exists that's already been lost or made inaccessible one way or another. So already I was kind of confronted by the arbitrariness of what's survived and what's available. Arbitrary in that it's not sort of a conscious choice necessarily, but what it is obviously is reflective of what's been seen to have value, whether it's commercial value or cultural value, often those two things have overlapped. And so it's obviously informed by the biases and prejudices of, you know, a hundred years of of film culture and and what has been preserved and what hasn't. And so I was trying to reflect that while obviously also being subject to my own preferences and biases and so on. You see, you know, a kind of predominance of, of certainly like Western star, not as in the genre, as in the part of the world movie stars whose whose works were kind of you know considered to be of this higher value and and you can see on the screen like how much better preserved those films have been and then of course there are lesser known stars often from less culturally dominant parts of the world you know you can see it in the material that 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 material has kind of survived against the odds and maybe what remains is a copy of a copy of a copy or it's you know the one print that was found in an attic somewhere and and that's why we now have this trace of a performance by a a star whose you know stardom has long since faded with then of course a few of my own kind of personal uh favorites in there there's a few british names that i think don't really receive they don't really kind of get any recognition when the film plays outside of the uk but when a uk audience sees barbara windsor up there for a moment or sid james there's a you know a little moment of recognition obviously and that's always stimulating so i'm excited to tour the film around the uk because finally sid james will have his moment i think the way you you put the film together it's a a feat of editing i was wondering what's your process in terms of getting the pacing right uh, choosing that right clip and how long how long did that all take yeah i mean what i love about working with archival material and especially actually uh archival material from fiction films which is is what the afterlight is made up from is how different a given sequence can feel once you remove it from that original context so most of the afterlight is you know built from these tiny little snatches of performance often it's not even a kind of vocal performance it's literally just someone 
moving in some way, you know, moving around a room, walking from place to place, performing some sort of physical action. And in the original context, there will have often been a very coherent, obvious narrative reason for that. You know, that was adding to the narrative propulsion of the film. But the second you strip that away, you get something much more sort of elemental and a bit mysterious. And I found that so stimulating that actually like holding those moments a little longer than was comfortable could often really transform them into something strange and, and unfamiliar. And then there was a, a, a multi-year pandemic, uh, Sam, where I had an opportunity to get much more familiar with the material than I had hoped to. Um, and yeah, while the film wasn't originally born of, of that time, it came to dominate my experience of that time. I love also that with uh, The Afterlight, you, you do have some original footage in the film. And I love that you went to award-winning director of photography, Robbie Ryan, to get, I believe, a single shot for the movie. Yeah, I think it's about 16 seconds. So we did, yeah, we had the Oscar-nominated cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, for about an hour to shoot 16 seconds, uh, which he very, very generously <laughs> agreed to do between various uh, much more high-profile gigs. As people will see if they see the film, uh, the shot itself is extremely basic and uh, arguably did not require a, a talent quite as immense as Robbie Ryan's. But for that reason, it seemed all the funnier to get someone ludicrously overqualified, especially because as the only original shot in the film, it means that, you know, this is a feature film whose, you know, original material is entirely shot by Robbie Ryan, even if he did the entire thing in a work period shorter than the runtime of the film. It, the, the basicness of the shot means it, it slides uh, all the more seamlessly into the body of the archive. I, I don't think the shot's basic. I think it's. Uh, I think you, listeners can maybe see that as as one of the promotional stills for the film, uh, the sort of title of the of the movie. I, I think it's beautiful, lovely neon sign. I completely agree. I, you know, I don't mean to do down the work at all. I think it's exquisite, hundred percent sincerely. It is exactly how I like dreamed of that shot, and it came to have such huge significance because obviously it was the one new thing. The film's been touring around uh, sort of few locations now. Have you have you been sort of checking in on the condition of the print? Yeah, the funny thing is, like as any uh, projectionist will tell you, and indeed I'm sure you know from your years as a projectionist, there is this sort of two eras of film projection: the pre-digital era and now. And ironically, as the skill has become rarer and the opportunities to see it done all the rarer, standards of projection have actually got vastly higher because you know you're not gonna turn up and have like a 17 year old who learned how to do it yesterday projecting the film in most cases you have these like veterans who really know their stuff and the only places that are doing it are places that you know really care so the the damage to the print has been more gradual than it might have been two decades ago or even one decade ago but absolutely yeah i mean it's it's inevitable and incremental and there have been a few little notable uh, degradations, including one very sinister thing, which I have yet to fully grapple with the causes of, where someone, a projectionist came up to me halfway through a recent tour of the US that, that I went on with the film 
and said, oh, there were some burns on the leader of Real One, which for anyone who's not familiar with with 35mm is, is like the bit that you don't see. It's like the countdown looping, you know, countdown from 10 to 1 or whatever. And on that bit of film, which is usually not shown to the audience, there had appeared three burns across three frames. And the projectionist had clipped them out and handed them to me in an envelope. And it was only when I pulled them out of the envelope that I saw what was on the three frames. And it was three sixes what? <laughs> from the countdown. So it was literally this this burnt, this, <laughs> this burned 666, which is now easily the most demonic physical object in my possession. Maybe you could bring those frames to future screenings just so people can see the whole print. Exactly, yeah, yeah, here's what you missed. I've been lucky enough to see the film at the, the BFI during London Film Festival, and I'm, I'm glad you're taking it on tour of the UK uh, right now. I guess people, if they want to book a ticket and, and have a look, uh, they can visit your website, theafterlight.xyz. That's the one. Yeah, there's 13 dates starting on June 29th and running all the way to the end of July. We have been talking about an under 90 minute film, The Afterlight, but for this podcast, uh, I gave you some homework to pick a to pick an under 90 minute film from from you know years gone by to add to our fictional film festival. Did you have a film in mind, or did you did you do a bit of research? Yeah, actually, this film came to mind before I was certain that it was under 90 minutes, although I suspected it was because it is a a masterclass of concision, and I guess because I've been thinking a lot about archival films recently and revisiting some of my favorites this was one such favorite that i hadn't seen in a long time and i rewatched recently uh, ahead of us discussing it and i thought was only more like potent and striking now than than i had remembered it even which is a all archival collage film about the birth of nuclear weaponry, essentially, and American culture as it sort of reshaped itself around the atomic bomb. And that is the Atomic Cafe. Armageddon has never been so darkly funny as in the Atomic Cafe. This 1982 cult classic juxtaposes Cold War history, propaganda, music and culture seamlessly crafted from government-produced educational and training films, newsreels and advertisements. Taken together, these sources cheerfully instruct the public on how to live in the atomic age, how to survive a nuclear attack, and how to fight and win a nuclear war. As a USA Army training film advises... Viewed from a safe distance, the atomic bomb is one of the most beautiful sights ever seen by man. I think that's that's an apt description. It's a film that's not readily available in the UK, but the good people at Kino Classics have, have released it. I think in the UK you can watch it on streaming services like Plex. I mean, this is a film I've not heard of before you mentioned it, so thank you very much for introducing The Atomic Cafe to me. We don't, I guess in the lineup currently, we, it is mostly fiction films. We do have a handful of docs. Isn't that always the way? But I'm keen to sort of, you know, build up the documentary wing, so it's really good to have this in. Look, I know the, I know the deal. We get pushed off into the sidebar. Oh, you're here for the documentary? Yes, that's in screen seven. Just down that corridor. 
up three flights of stairs. A lovely, dedicated audience come to those screenings, and the sense of community in the documentary wing is much Thank better you. than the f- fiction feature counterparts, uh, I would say. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the f- filmmakers. There's three credited directors on this film, Kevin Rafferty, Jane Loder, and, and Pierce Rafferty. Are you, because you know, this is sort of a very similar space to where, where you work uh, in a professional capacity. Are these names that you knew before this film or, or people whose work you, know, you were familiar with previously? No, I have to say, I don't really know anything about the three of them other than presumably that Kevin and Pierce Rafferty are brothers, I want to say. As far as I'm aware, I think this was kind of the passion project. I think this was made, I mean, it, and you can kind of tell given the incredible breadth of material, I think it took many, many years to make this film. And I think funding for that was fairly hard to uh, acquire. So I think this really was their their magnum opus. And it is almost impossible to imagine how they managed it at a time when all of this archive had to be sourced physically in the real world, often from the very, you know, government agencies that they are so ably satirizing in the film. And despite those constraints, like there's material in here that I didn't know existed and and I can't believe isn't better known given the unbelievable, you know, global historical significance of the events. I mean, the the film opens with uh, the Trinity test, the original nuclear weapons testing that the US did, and then the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And there's archival material for all of that that honestly I'd never seen before. And, and given the sheer significance of those events, it's hard to believe is not, you know, as infamous as the Zapruder tape or whatever else. And all I can assume is that it's it's partly because the picture it paints of kind of moral indifference is so stark, but it's all here and all brought together so, you know, competently, but also uh, humorously and artfully uh, in this film. I think it's an incredible achievement, especially for for the time it was made. We were talking earlier about how a lot of commercial film is not available for you mostly commercial reasons or sometimes just happenstance because a lot of this footage is official military film government film that is sort of so rigorously preserved and available um and and of course you know in the 40s 50s 60s film was the way to to record all of this stuff it, it looks incredible uh, all, you know the, the footage they use and from some very you know, whilst grim, uh, you know, really incredible vantage points as well. Like as a piece of work, some of the cinematography that we see is is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, actually that that uh, kind of ironic quote for, that you read from the copy on the back of the Blu-ray where one of the military generals says that the atomic bomb is like the most beautiful sight you'll ever see. There's a strange, morbid truth to that. And often it's, you know, it makes for some of the most striking moments of the film where you have these very carefully constructed bits of kind of propaganda, essentially um, reassuring the American public about their safety in the event of nuclear attack that will often then be interrupted in in the Atomic Cafe by just shocking, like, blunt piece of archive of an actual 
bomb drop and what that is and what that looks like. And obviously there's like a sheer abject horror to it, but also a strange kind of beauty. And, and yeah, the kind of archival material itself is stunning and horrific. And that's, yeah, just like one of many emotional contradictions that this film contains. <laughs> I actually, when I rewatched it, I told my flatmate that I was about to start watching it. And, and she said, oh, well, you know, what is it? Maybe I'll watch with you. And I said, oh, it's this, it's like a comedy about the Cold War and, and nuclear warfare. And she was like, oh, okay then. And we got about 20 minutes in. <laughs> and she was like, when you said this was a comedy... <laughs> because it it, like it I mean it is like there's really really funny moments in it but it's also utterly unvarnished in its presentation of like the sheer apocalyptic horror of this time and this development and this you know irreversible change to the world that was the birth of the atomic bomb and you're you're constantly thrown back and forth between this extremely dark humor and then just this absolute horror which the film does not seek to elide at all. Captain Behan, what was your most outstanding experience on this historic flight? I suppose it was when the clouds opened up over the target at Nakasaki. Target was there pretty as a picture. I made the run, let the bomb go. That was my greatest thrill. What I, I I love about the film is that it, you know you as an audience member, your context of when you're watching it, like when you were, if you were a contemporary audience in 1982, this film sort of the footage stops around the, the 60s in the movie, so there's still 20 years of hindsight and better education and a changing public opinion towards the U.S. military, and and now with even more hindsight, you know we're, we're even more informed sort of watching this. So you're you have to bring something to this, I guess, to to know that. You know that that is actually quite funny what this person is saying. You know, so stoically and po-faced uh, or, or whatever. But I I do agree. I think you know with um with maybe how the film has been positioned as a that what I didn't mention was one of the pool quotes on the front of the, the box is a stunner has one howling with laughter and like if you go into the film expecting that which I did it took me about twenty minutes I think to really get into the tempo and to really sort of I guess get into to see what's going on. Uh, with the film. I sort of love that though. I sort of love how my relationship with the film actively changed from minute one to minute 20 to, to all the way up to minute 86. One of the things I love about it is that it's, for the most part, linear, which it feels now, especially like documentaries, are, there seems to be this total resistance to telling nonfiction stories in a linear fashion. I guess especially because of like the formulas of you know, like streamer Netflix type documentaries where you start with like the cold open and someone says something kind of mysterious. And then you have the montage of all the different interviewees kind of summing up the story of this murder or whatever the hell it is. We're so used to now like this constant use of like flashback and flash forward and playful chronology, which often obviously can be a stimulating and, and provocative way to tell a story. But I also think there are certain kinds of stories, especially historical stories, that hugely benefit from a linear 
fairly plain kind of storytelling. And I think this is one because, like you say, you, you maybe go in expecting this slightly kind of camp vision of like Americana of the 50s and, you know, people are fairly familiar with like the the whole duck and cover advice that was given to American school ch- children in case of nuclear attack. You expect some of that kind of campy PSA material. And instead, what do you get? You get the sheer horror <laughs> of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like right off the bat. And I think that's, uh, you know, a, prov- a productive thing in this film, not least because you see the evolving understanding and the evolving ideology that was built around the whole thing. I mean, one of the things I found most shocking about it, watching it for the first time, is all of the interviewees at the beginning when they're talking about the bombing of Japan have this weirdly like chipper kind of amoral attitude to the whole thing, which I I guess speaks to this sort of strange like ignorance of of what this technology really was and, and what kind of Rubicon had been crossed with the move into nuclear warfare. You have that that uh, pilot who's just dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, killing, you know, untold thousands. And he's sort of going like, oh, gee whiz, like when the cloud cover opened and I was able to get a, a decent sight on the target and then drop the bomb, I was happy as dandy. And like, it's unbelievably shocking, but seems born of like this moment of real American exceptionalist, patriotic blindness, but also just like the sheer ignorance with which these things were first introduced and and deployed to such tragic consequences and such murderous consequences. And then as time goes on, like as you see this this material presented linearly, you see how they kind of found the euphemisms and avoided that kind of embarrassment by instead, you know, framing it within uh, a story about, you know, self-preservation, you know, that this is protecting American interests or that this is a question of, you know, securing peace through the, uh, you know, power of the threat of nuclear weaponry. And there's that thing that, that people keep saying, like just civilians keep saying of, uh, well, as as distasteful as this might be to our American sensibilities, because after all, we're the good guys, uh, we simply must, because if we don't do this, then the other side will. And so, yeah, seeing it in order, seeing it, like seeing the justifications evolve and seeing the, the thought process evolve over time, I think is one of the film's greatest strengths. It's incredible to compress, you know, over twenty years of history and public opinion and uh, government, you know, tone of voice into into eighty six minutes. I I really liked that uh, sprawling time because you do see, I think, in terms of how yeah public opinion changes. There's lots of newsreel footage um in here with sort of how people might be interviewed about this subject, and also the filmmakers use contemporary songs from the era to sort of punctuate and and bookmark certain things and the tone of the songs and the lyrics to the songs change i mean it, it, yeah like well this is where the comedy comes in i guess yeah so there there's all of these like country western songs that are all like 
or the, the one that stays in my head is the one that's like, I'm glad they dropped the H-bomb because now the only people left alive in my town are 13 women and me or something. And it's just like, the, it, I mean, and I'm sure that it was intended ironically at the time and was meant to be like very darkly comic. But there's a, yeah, there's a bluntness to it that is really shocking. And I guess could only be born of that kind of weird like almost death wish that seemed to overcome popular culture of that era. Well, it's like, yeah, the artists who are consuming the propaganda and the news footage and, and this is, you know, how we should, I don't know, turn it into song. This is what the radio stations want. You know, a chirpy, upbeat, uh, you know, man on a guitar singing about this death and destruction. But uh, I think the... Uh, you know, like what we see is incredible sort of archive, but what we hear is also incredible archive. And again, it's like a really good way, I think, just to preserve how it was viewed on a, I don't know, on like a, <laughs> a commercial radio sentence or, uh, you know, in the pop charts. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a fad. That's what's weird about it. It's like so much of the film, I mean, even the title is alluding to some of the archive that's, that's in the film, uh, looking at just various things that were briefly kind of named after the inauguration of the atomic bomb and you would have you know atomic cafes and the atomic cocktail and you know and all these sort of like faddish innovations which feel more akin to like you know fidget spinners or something than they do to you know the single most morbid kind of terrifying abject technological innovation in human history and there is this sort of sense, I mean, actually, there's a quote in the film from Eisenhower, which is presented, you know, somewhat knowingly in the film, but I think actually has a certain truth to it, where he's sort of saying that the, the rate of technological change at that time had so outpaced the rate of emotional and intellectual capacity to deal with that change that people were left in this weird kind of i don't know it's almost like nihilism isn't it, it you know it's what on earth do you make of it living in a in a nuclear age and it seems what people made of it was just absolutely baffling <laughs> camp spectacle it feels so part and parcel of like that classic like 1950s americana that has been sort of preserved as a you know, sort of a bit of a novelty period. Um, but it was to the backdrop of warfare in Europe, warfare in Korea, the, the nuclear testing and Cold War beginnings and, and like all of this horrible. And like maybe that's how you process it. You you have to make a pithy, like, you know, Western style song that, you know, just chronicles what's going on into a, to a catchy beat. And I do think that, you know, there's, a, there's an argument that this sort of thing you know the, the story of the birth of the atomic bomb kind of has to be told through comedy because the jarring difference between its reality and the story of it that's been told is so stark that it is just inevitably humorous in in like the worst grimmest way possible and they don't have to do much at all to draw that out. Like you say, like just a, even, you know, even putting aside the like comedy songs, even just the straightforward government issued films that were being put out at that time to inform the public about, you know, the nature of the threat was so 
farcically off the mark that you can't watch one of those with, you know, a, a stern general saying, well, after the nuclear bomb drops, make sure you wait, wait at least 10 minutes before you come out of your bunker. And then, you know, cut from that to the apocalyptic spectacle of what one of these bombs actually does. What can you do but laugh? I mean, it's so unimaginable. It sort of chronicles how the threat of nuclear warfare became a public uh, commercial commodity, like selling homes with nuclear bunkers attached and and then sort of downplaying it like, oh, it's a great place to put the kids if they're being too noisy in the nuclear bunker that you have in your house in case of nuclear warfare. Like they, they I guess it's that, you know, just rationalization of something that's totally unthinkable. But uh, but all of that stuff, again, was, was really fascinating. By the time you get to the end of the, the period the film covers where people are sort of living with this as a backdrop and... And buying a house with that as a feature is actually quite desirable um, for for the house buying public. Yeah, it's like this constant turning everything to a positive Mm. that is like this relentless theme of the film. You know, in fact, the only time that people really express fear or anxiety about nuclear warfare in the film is in the, the short films made by the US government to kind of mock people who were afraid of the atomic bomb. And you have these like little shorts where it'll be like, don't be like uh, old cautious Larry over here who thinks he's going to be killed in a, a nuclear fallout. Sensible minds know that actually just, you know, ducking and covering when Russia drops the bomb will be enough to ensure you survive. What can you do in the face of, of that kind of logic but laugh? Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? There's no like 1980s flourishes or, or anything because it's all archive material. There's no new voiceovers, but I, I really love how it puts the material front and center. Of course, it's edited in a way which you might heighten the humor in, in places, but uh, but it is just sort of this is real footage, undoctored, you know, with with no 1982, you know, like that. And that would probably date it more if there was a you know, 1982 wipes. voiceover and some star wipes and you know maybe some like glam rock or something on the soundtrack. I I love that it's all in period for the for the piece. Yeah, and as you say, it's beautiful. Like it, the the fact that the default at the time was obviously to shoot on film. The result is a film that that where even these sort of ephemeral seemingly insignificant moments are captured in quite staggering precision. Everything from the blasts themselves to just like the faces of these people who don't really have any sense of what they're doing and yet are at this completely seminal moment in human history. What I love as well is that this film was released in 1982, so there will be, or there was at least, a 35mm print of this movie for exhibition originally. So, in our festival, if should someone pick the afterlight, we could double bill a 35mm print of this and a 35mm print, you're the only 35mm print uh, of the afterlight. I would love that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a film you, you kind of want to watch on film. Because you're watching an artifact, aren't you? You're watching, like, this, this very real physical record of that unbelievably fraught moment in history 
and I love that, you know, in this restoration of the Atomic Cafe that, that's clearly happened a few years ago, obviously they've cleaned up the Atomic Cafe, but they've not sought to clean up any of the original archive that Atomic Cafe uses, much of which is pretty damaged in one way or another. And you can kind of feel its age and feel its journey to winding up in this movie. This sort of gives you an indication of maybe how often some of the footage was presented, like the newsreel footage, which would have been cranked through projectors, you know, on a loop in cinemas, and the training footage, which again would have just been cranked out at military training sessions or, or whatever for new recruits to watch. And, and of course, that stuff isn't going to be preserved. It's just it's it has a function and it's to be played as many times as needed. And I think that that really like nails something that that is what I find most fascinating about archival filmmaking and that I think this film does so well is every piece of archive is telling so many stories on top of the one that it means to tell. You know, you, you have one of these like government information films that's telling people what to do in the event of a nuclear attack and it tells that story. But on top of that, it's telling the story of what the government was thinking at that time. It's telling the story of what the public was hearing at that time. It's telling the story of how these messages were being conveyed. Like you say, even just like the look of the film itself might tell the story of how often these films were projected. And I think the best archival films amplify all of those different, often contradictory resonances rather than trying to, you know, nail them down to one thing. We have The Atomic Cafe in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. By picking the film, you've joined our team of guest curators at the festival. Welcome aboard. We'll give you your staff card and a hat. What does the hat look like? Is it a cap? Like a baseball cap? Or? I'm thinking like a classic baseball cap with the fest logo on and it'd just be a nice nice thing to wear in case it's a bit hot. Thank you. That's very thoughtful. As part of your commitment as a guest curator, uh, we do like to ask people where they might like to screen their film. If there's a, an ideal location, uh, cinema or elsewhere where you feel like the Atomic Cafe might be might be best at home? Well, it it is both in fact both the Atomic Cafe and my film are both Academy Ratio 1.37 to 1, which increasingly, you know, it, there's fewer and fewer screens that can really get those images big because often they're, you know, you have a big wide screen and they're bringing the curtains in to to encase uh, the smaller ratio so i would say maybe an imax screen Oof. like one of those big imax screens where you could get the academy ratio very big so yeah i'm thinking maybe like the the imac like the cinerama dome in la or maybe the science museum imax and we'll blow the film up onto imax film and then we'll project it in there and it will fill like the full scope of the audience's vision. Because then you get the explosions really big, which feels crucial. Presenting it in the, the biggest, best possible way is, is, is great. And you're right, you know, so often you have to remove a lot of the screen out of the equation to present an Academy Ratio picture. Let's like really make the image sing uh, at our festival. I, I, I love that. Going to the cinema, part and parcel of that experience is, is snacks and drinks and, and, and things. Would you would you want to put on a, a special menu, uh, maybe at the kiosk as people you know head into the IMAX? As people sit down to watch the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, 
I when I was rewatching it the other night with my flatmate, I had the second half of a chocolate orange, and I don't know whether that was fitting or not, but it was delicious. I hadn't had one in years. Those are often a Christmassy treat, so I love the the sheer nerve of having one in in early June. Exactly. Someone someone brought one to uh, my flatmate's birthday party, and no one ate it. So I then ate it and enjoyed it very much. So everyone who attends the screening will get a free chocolate orange. I, I think only half a chocolate orange. Let's let's really replicate the experience you are. <laughs> yeah, we need to keep an eye on the bottom line because they're not cheap. The chocolate oranges. Especially out of season. Terry's making a lot on those. I think maybe uh, bringing out an element of the film, maybe recreating the atomic cocktail uh, that, that's featured in the picture might be quite fun. As a, If you want an alcoholic beverage to, to enjoy uh, with this film, uh, which is equally, you know, absolutely bleak, but also presented as a, as a dark comedy. <laughs> there is a lot of very bad food in the film. All the stuff that they're preparing for the bunkers, lots of sort of tinned things that you wouldn't want tinned. So maybe that's the theme. Maybe you can have whatever you want, but it comes tinned. Okay, let's do it. We can tin the oranges or tin the cocktails. I think we can make that work. And finally, if you had to have, or if you could invite someone to introduce the film and maybe you know join us for a Q&A afterwards, is there anyone you'd like to, to hear from? I mean, presumably the old Rafferty brothers <laughs> <laughs> and Jane Loder. We mustn't forget Jane Loder, the, the third director. Yeah, I think we'd do a Q&A with Jane Loder and the Rafferty brothers, but it would mainly focus on the, the childhood of the Rafferty brothers, their brotherly dynamic and so on no i don't know is there anyone interesting to talk to about the atomic cafe well i think the filmmakers themselves might be might be mm. quite good seems a bit obvious now though doesn't it well i mean maybe maybe we go back to to some people featured in the movie um you know whether it was some of the vox pop people on the sidewalk you know just someone picked from obscurity uh, or or someone who was involved in you know maybe someone who bought a house with a nuclear bunker after seeing the newsreel footage or uh, or, or purchased an atomic cocktail yeah i suppose one of the one of the duck and cover children would be good they'd be what now like 70 we could just get any 70 year old no one will know any different that's cool okay well this sounds like it's going to be a, a a fun a fun screening um and say you know like one of the very few currently uh, documentaries at the film festival but uh, hopefully you know future guests the gauntlet has been laid down uh, let's boost uh, our documentary wing Thank you so much for joining us today, Charlie. It's been, it's been great to talk about film, talk about the atomic bomb, uh, and, and actors who are no longer with us, you know, all of these great light subjects. <laughs> <laughs> A pleasure. If people want to watch The Afterlight, where should they go for more information? They can go to The Afterlight. That's The Afterlight. I, I've taken to enunciating that really clearly so that people don't hear The Afterlife, which would be fair enough. Uh, yeah, theafterlight.xyz is the film's website and all the screenings are listed there we're going to Ipswich we're going to Manchester we're going to Belfast we're going to Dublin we're going to Glasgow we're going all over the place the first screening in London is sold out but there's a second one everyone please come and help us sell some tickets I've got to go to a screening of the film I, I, I adored it and uh, and yeah I'll go I'll go back and watch it again you see if I won't I'll be there at the Genesis I want to watch the movie again delighted to hear it thanks so much thank you that was a real pleasure Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. 
You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 